All right, good morning. Um, we are going to continue to walk through this series that we started uh, quite, a little, quite a little while ago. I don't know exactly when, but this series called Primary Colors. My name is Luke Hedinger. I get to be one of the pastors on staff. Um, and Craig, Pastor Craig is still out in California, so you can continue to be praying for him, praying over him. Uh, he is uh, continuing to work through his doctorate. Um, and if you've ever done that, you know that's a lot of work. And so he is desiring to just continue to grow so he can continue to lead us and wherever God has for us to, to go. And we as, as this family, as this congregation, I just encourage you to continue to lift him up in prayer. Okay, so let's keep praying. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 4 with me. Luke chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible, but you want to uh, look it up in those seat back Bibles, there's, uh, Mar- I think they're maroon those maroon Bibles, it's, we're going to be looking at page 1565. 1565 uh, is the page number that we're going to be looking at. And, and you might be thinking, as you're turning there, you might be thinking, wait a second. Okay, last week we looked at Exodus. You said that, I, I thought this whole idea of primary colors is we're just going to stay in Genesis. We're going to stay in Genesis 1, a little bit of Genesis 2, and now we're just going all over the place. What's the deal? Well, here's the deal. All right, primary colors, we've, we keep saying this, the idea of primary colors is that if you start with them, then you can create all kinds of different colors just from the primary colors that you have, right? That's the way colors work, art people, kind of, all right, yeah, I see, I see like a, you know, I, that's kind of the way it works, let's just go with it, all right, let's just go with that, that's kind of the way primary colors work, and so we're saying, uh, Pastor Craig, three weeks ago, uh, set up a theology of, of what does it look like to rest? What does it look like for us to, to be a people who worship a God of rest? And we started talking about rest. And, then, and, and basically, he asked this question, what does it mean for God to rest? Because we know in Genesis 1 uh, and Genesis 2, the very beginning of Genesis 2, it doesn't, there's no command for us to rest. We just read that God finished his work and rested. So we just ask the question, what does it mean for us to be people who worship a God of rest? What does it mean for us to worship a God who is not driven by scarcity? A God who, who can sit and rest and understand that he, that he rules in a state of rest? That, that he's not surprised by new variants? He's not surprised by economies? He's not surprised by, by wars or rumors of wars? What does it mean for us to be people who worship a God who rests? And so that was, that was the first week. And as we continued to kind of work through this idea of rest last week, we look at Exodus 20. And Exodus 20 is where we see it goes from, okay, God rested, now you rest. And God brought the people out of slavery. If you weren't here last week, go online, um, go on YouTube and, and, and watch that. God brought his people out of slavery and he says, I'm doing a new thing in you. I'm, I'm bringing you to be a people who are recreated. And so what do you need to do? You need to rest. And what does that look like for us? To be a people who, who Sabbath, who Shabbat, who, who cease and be a people who, in that ceasing, we Noah. Remember? The Noah, that, that word, okay, I need to, to rest and settle. What does that look like for me to do that? Not, not because we just have to, to make sure we're following all the rules right, okay? That's not, my job is not to go around to you and say, okay, tell me about your week. Troy, tell me about your week. Did you rest? Oh, I don't know. You mowed the yard. Is that rest? 
I don't know, church, can we say that Troy did a good job or not? That's not, that's not, don't answer that. All right, that's not our job, right? But we're asking the question, what does it look like for us to not just try and we're going to follow all the rules, but we are people who are being formed by this idea that not only do we worship a God of rest, but we are people who rest. And we're being formed by that. We don't have to be anxious. We don't have to be driven by fear. We don't have to be, we don't have to have this scarcity mindset. What does that look like? And this week, as we continue walking through this idea of rest, I think the question that I want us to ask is, what does it mean for us to be people who are catalyst for rest? Who are catalysts for rest? And the, the reason we ask this question is because rest doesn't just, Pastor Craig said this three weeks ago, we keep saying this, rest, this idea of rest doesn't just mean I get to have my favorite drink and lay on the beach and my life is just easy sailing from here on out. That's not rest. That's not, that's not what rest means. Can that be part of rest? Yes. Okay. Hey, we, let's go lay on the beach and have a vacation. I'm all down for that. But that is not the primary purpose. When we think about what does it mean for, for us to worship a God of rest, it doesn't mean that we don't have any chaos in our lives. Amen? Right? Because some of you are like, if that's what it means, I'm doing something wrong. Right? Because I got plenty of chaos. See, the, what it means to be a God of rest, it means God is a God of rest. We're people who are formed by rest, but we don't just stop there. Because if we stop there, this idea of like me time, yeah, that's, that makes sense why we would think that. It's like if, you know, any of you have kids or were a kid at one point, I think that covers everybody, right? There are times where, you know, maybe your parents told you or you've told your kids, you got to clean that room. You can't find anything in your room. Your room is a pigsty. It looks like a tornado ran through there. All the different things that, that parents say to kids, you've said it, you've heard it, right? And, and at some point, the temptation is for a parent, the, the temptation is, you know what, I'm done I'm, I, it doesn't, doesn't help to say anything. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to just shut that door, click, and just back away. Right? Let's just pretend like everything's okay in there. Let's just, let's just shut the door, you know, like scoop the clothes in there so that it's not falling out into the hallway. Let's just shove everything in there, shut the door, and, you know, not my problem. I'm just going to, I'm going to go back in the family room where there's a semblance of order. Let's just stay in there. Not my problem. See, that's the temptation. When we look at the world around us, I, amen, that's the temptation. I don't know, you know, things are broken. Things are scary. Everything seems like it continues to go off the rails. And so, you know what the desire is? Let's just shut the door. And, and oftentimes that's the, that's kind of the response of the church. The, the world is, is going to hell. And so, you know what, let's just, let's create our own subculture. Let's create our own subculture of entertainment because the world's idea of entertainment, oh, that's just terrible. So let's create our own, let's create our own music, let's create our own art, let's create our own whatever. And you see, the church historically was on the cutting edge of all those things. And yet now it seems like the response all too often is, you know, like, we don't know what's going to help that. So let's just shut the door, let's walk away. Let's pretend like everything's just, you know, I don't know. I don't know what's going to help that room to be clean, but let's just, let's just rest in here. And that is a, an appropriate response if we think rest is all about us living a carefree, chaos-free existence. 
But the question that we keep asking, and hopefully you've picked up on it, is what if that's not all that rest means? What if what we see from Scripture is not for us to just shut the door and walk away, but it's for us to be a catalyst for rest, and it's for us to be a catalyst, an outpost, an outcropping of hope in a hopeless, chaotic world? What if that's what, if that's what rest means? That yes, we are people who are formed by rest, but what's going to happen, what's going to help this world be less chaotic is for people who worship a God who rests, who are being formed by rest to go out and be a catalyst for rest and invite more people into that rest. Right? What if that's what's going to help this world? And as we look uh, through this passage that we're going to be look at, looking at, Luke chapter 4, I believe that's the invitation for all of us in here today. Is not only do we worship a God of rest, not only are we being formed by rest, but that we are an invitation, we are a catalyst for more people to be invited into this rest. And so if, if you have uh, your Bibles, let's go ahead and stand with me in honor of God's word. And we're going to read uh, Luke chapter 4, 14 through 30. And we, we may stop halfway in between. I'm not sure. We'll figure it out when we get there. But I'll let you know when we're stopping, okay? So uh, Luke chapter 4 says this, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Let's stop there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we, we praise you for your word. We praise you for uh, just your goodness to us. We praise you for the invitation that we have to rest. And God, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to what you would have for us here this morning. It's in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So what's, what's happening in the scripture that we just read? All right, Jesus, in, in, in uh, verse 14, we see that he is, he's going around the countryside, he's, he's, he's preaching, he's teaching, he's, and he's growing in popularity. And this is, this is right at the beginning of his ministry where, where Luke is recording. Like things are happening in, in Capernaum, things are, things are happening all over the place. This is uh, before, he, he hasn't even gotten any disciples yet, or like formally. Probably people were following him, uh, but he hasn't called any disciples yet. This is right after his baptism. Uh, right after the, the Holy Spirit had descended on him like a dove, right after he was sent out into the wilderness and tempted for 40 days. And so this is, this is kind of in this in-between time. And what we see Jesus doing is he goes back to his hometown, this little bitty uh, suburb, that less than a thousand people most likely. He goes back to his hometown and he gives basically an inaugural address. And he says, look, you guys have heard about me. Right? You, you know all this stuff. You know what's going on. Most likely, the, the people in, in Nazareth, they had heard about the baptism. 
They had heard what happened. They had heard that, that John the Baptist looked at Jesus and said what? Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, right? They heard about John the Baptist proclaiming about Jesus. They most likely heard about how he got baptized and when he went down, he came up and weird things happened. You know, there's, uh, there's some debate on, you know, was it thunder? Was it God? Was it, there was a bird mixed in there that, that came and sat on his shoulder. Oh, you know, there's all these weird things that happen at Jesus' baptism. And now Jesus shows up in his hometown and he gives this address. And, and it says that, that he, he took the scroll and, you know, that he's, he's kind of famous, you know, that, that hometown pride, that runs deep, right? If you've ever, ever been in anybody from a small town, you know, like, like my small town, I haven't been there in a long time, but last time I was there, they still had the billboard up for when the girls basketball team won state championship in 1999, right? I mean, it, it runs deep. And so, so he comes to the synagogue, as was his custom, on the Sabbath. Again, so, so that Easter egg of seven, that's still there. So it's, it's referring back to Genesis 1. We're, again, primary colors. He, they give him the scroll, and they basically give him the microphone. It's like, Jesus is here. Oh, you know. Give him the mic. He stands up, as was the custom. He stands up, unrolls the scroll. Most likely, there was a cycle of verses of, of uh, Scripture that they read through. And so most likely, this was the passage for that day. He finds the place where it says, and what he reads from is Isaiah, Isaiah 61. And this is what, this is what Jesus says. He begins to read. And if you, if you look, all right, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, a recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. See, Jesus, he, he reads this, this uh, Isaiah passage, which is a prophecy of an anointed one, right? One who's the, the Holy Spirit is on, who is coming in the power of God. He reads it and he applies it to himself. And he, he, he tells him, he's like, hey, I am the anointed one. He's like, yeah, you, you heard what happened. He goes through all this stuff. You, basically, you hear what's happening. This is what's happening through Capernaum, through, the, through my ministry. This is what's going on. He says, I'm proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. And it's interesting because if you look at Isaiah 61, there's a few differences between what he says and what's, what we have recorded. Isaiah 6, 61, 1 through 2 says this, The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. It's interesting because as Isaiah, uh, what we read in Isaiah, it takes a kind of a turn, right? It, like what Jesus is saying is like, I'm proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. And in Isaiah, it's like the day of vengeance. And, and yet Jesus leaves that off. And it's like, okay, well, what's, what's happening there? And if you read this, this is a little bit different because Jesus goes to Isaiah 58 and kind of takes some, some uh, thoughts from Isaiah 58 and puts it in there where Isaiah 58 is all about uh, obeying the Sabbath and a fast, and it's all about not oppressing people. And as Jesus is, what he's doing, again, this is his inaugural address. He's saying, look, I am here. Because as he's, as he's doing all this, he says, he says, let's, let's get back to it, 22, uh, 21, he began by saying to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying, look, this is what you've been waiting for. 
This is what we're hoping for. You heard about my baptism. You heard about my, my anointing. Today, this is being fulfilled in your presence. You see, what he's saying is, he's not saying it is done, it is finished, that comes later. But what he's saying is, I am bringing this into being. I'm bringing this mindset into being. I'm, I'm bringing this way of, of thinking into being. Right? And you might, be, you might be thinking, wait a second, things are still chaotic, right? Things are still crazy in our world. How is Jesus saying, this, is, this has been fulfilled in your hearing? And again, he's saying, look, this has implications for you, but it's ongoing. I'm bringing this into being. And I love it because as they're thinking, uh, like reading Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58, and they're, they're thinking, oh man, Jesus is awesome. And they're, they're saying, all spoke well of him. We're amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. The, the reason they're speaking well of him and they're, they're amazed at the gracious words because what their understanding of Isaiah 61 meant, they're thinking, can this be? Because you see, what Isaiah 61 refers to is this year of jubilee. Like this, this year that God is going to send his anointed one and things are going to be set right. But what Isaiah 61 refers to, the year of the Lord's favor, it has its roots in uh, uh, Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25 talks about, first it talks about Sabbath year. And again, Leviticus 25 has its roots in where? Genesis 1, right? Genesis 1 and 2. Because Leviticus, all right, let's, let's walk through that. Leviticus 25, it basically doubles down and, and we see God rested on the seventh day. Leviticus 25 says, look, not only is it good to, all right, God rested, you rest. But then it says, every, not only every seventh day do you rest, but every seventh year you let the land rest. Not only do you rest, but you let the land rest. And it says, don't plant, don't plow. Like, you take for yourself whatever the land produces, that's what you eat. Can you imagine for, for an agrarian society, for a society of farmers who make their living off of the land, could you imagine what this would sound like? I mean, that, that is a, a huge amount of trust. And, and in fact, in Leviticus 25, I don't have it up on the screen, but you can go back and read it. In Leviticus 25, uh, it's almost like God recognizes the amount of trust it takes. And he says, hey, I'm going to take care of you. In fact, what you plant in year six, you're gonna, like, I'm going to give you such an abundance in that year that you're still going to be eating from that when it comes to the, the ninth year. Like, you just, just trust me. He's inviting them into places of deeper and deeper trust, forming them to be a people who rest and worship a God of rest. But not only that, I love this because not only that, but it's like uh, Leviticus just doubles down. He's like, not only every seventh year do you rest, but every seven years, seven times seven years, which is 49th year, we're going to have a, a year of, of rest, Sabbath year. But then the 50th year, the year after that, we're going to blow this trumpet on, uh, on, on the, the festival. And then it's going to be the year of Jubilee. It's like Sabbath year on steroids. And in that Sabbath year, not only do you not work, not only do you not plow the ground, not only do you not do these different things, but also everybody who has debts, those debts get forgiven. Anybody who sold themselves into slavery, they are set free. See, in, in this day and age, in this culture, when, when people would maybe make bad investments or, or they would get to a place where, or, you know, they lost everything, 
they could sell themselves into slavery. It was kind of like getting a loan. Right? They would sell themselves into slavery by people and they would work for them and they would get paid and, and, and most, like, most of the time they would give up their land to those people and so they would kind of lose everything. But there was always the message of Jubilee, this, this 50th year, the message was no matter what happens, no matter how bad things get, no matter how far I have gone, there is always hope. There's hope for restoration. No matter how crazy the world gets, there is hope that the jubilee year, the year of the Lord's favor, is happening. It's, it's going to come. It, even if I find myself in slavery, sooner or later, there is going to be freedom on the horizon. Amen? And you see, not only that, but this year, this year of, of jubilee, it points forward to the ultimate year of Lord's favor. When this ultimate anointed one will come and as Revelation says, I will wipe away every tear from your eye. Death will be no more. Neither will be mourning or, or all these. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come. I'm going to set things right. And so in Leviticus 25, it points forward to this ultimate year, which is what Jesus talks about in Isaiah 61. And I love it because the people, they, they're picking up on this because the people that Jesus is talking to in this synagogue, they are people under Roman authority, under Roman rule. They are people who have been oppressed for generations. And so can you imagine what they would be hearing as they hear Jesus reading from Isaiah 61 and they know what Isaiah 61, you know, they, they, know, they know what that's about. They know Leviticus 25. They know Genesis 1. And so they're thinking, can this be, can this, can this really be happening? The, the thing that we've been hoping for, the thing that we've been praying for, the thing that we were just asking God for over and over, can this really be happening? And Jesus says, this is being fulfilled in your hearing, and they're speaking well of him. But then, in the midst of speaking well of them, they also say, wait a second, wait a second, isn't this Joseph's son? I love it because it's almost like as they're hoping and, and getting excited and speaking well, there's also this like, wait a second, we, we know this guy. Wait a second, we've, we've been around him for years. Like uh, in, in another gospel, it says, well, here's his brothers, here's his sisters, his mom's right there. This is Joseph's son. Uh, one commentary says that this, is, this could also be a reference to Jesus' birth story. That they're like, wait, like the idea of it's Joseph's son. They might have been like, Joseph's son, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, small town. We know. Yeah, Joseph's son. We know your backstory. It's, it's crazy because it's almost like their hope in Jesus gets tempered by their familiarity with Jesus. Can we relate? I mean, those of us who have been in church forever... There are things that we hope for and there are things that we pray for and we want the world to, to be set right and we want things to happen and yet the reality is we've been in church a long time and things are still crazy and our lives are still chaotic and things are still really, really hard. So it's almost like we, I, I, man, I don't know if you can, but I can relate to this where it's like, man, can this actually be? But wait a second, I've been here before. And Jesus, I, I think that he feels that, and he goes on and says in 23, Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me. Do hear in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. 
Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. It's, it's weird because, like, if we just stop there, it's like, I mean, they're, they're, you know, there's this doubt, but it's not like they're denying you. It's not like they're, like, not letting you have the microphone. I mean, you're speaking, right? But, but what he's doing is he's creating tension for what he's about to say. It's almost like, you know, you can, you can hear, like, the, oh, what's coming next? Right, where, where are we going? Because I know what I want you to say. When, when I hear you speak from Isaiah 61, and when I hear you say this is being fulfilled in your hearing, it's like, okay, so let's go drive out the Romans. Let's go, let's go, you know, free every slave. Let's go forgive every debt. That's what I want to hear. But where are you going? He says in verse 25, I assure you, that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there, were, there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. <sighs> no gasps? No, nobody? I mean, look, look, okay, so that's the message that we get from Luke. That's what Jesus says. We, I mean, we're familiar with this story. What, what do the, how do the people respond? All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. I mean, we just read what he said. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. Could you imagine? Could you imagine if in the middle of me preaching this morning, I say something so outlandish that you get up and you pick me up and you take me to, I don't, I don't know, through, you, you're like, where's something we can throw Luke off of? Could you imagine? I mean, could you imagine the response? They go from speaking well of him and like, oh, this guy, he's our guy. You know, I'm, you, you know that my kids played with Jesus when they were growing up. You know that, right? They go from speaking well of him to being like, where's something we can throw him off of? And it says, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Why the response? Why the response? It's because I believe that when, when the, the Israelites, when the Jewish people heard Jesus saying, this has been fulfilled in your hearing, and they're thinking, oh, the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee, the Sabbath year, Genesis 1, things are going to be set right. These Romans are going to be kicked out. All this stuff is happening. It's almost like he's saying, look, I know what you want. I know what you expect. But what I'm going to give you is what you need, not necessarily what you want. I have something bigger in store for you than just me time and mojitos. I have something more in store for you than just sitting on the beach and having a carefree, chaos-free life. I have something more prepared for you than that. And they couldn't take it. And I think the reason is, is because what he hits on, I think that he hits on two, two major things that he challenges in this message. One, he hits on their comfort. And two, he hits on their sense of control. You know, when you think about their comfort, it's, we, we all get this. Have you ever been in a situation where it's like, okay, we're going to do something and I have all these expectations? Marriage is a perfect example of this, right? You know, when you come into a marriage relationship, 
and you're like, oh, this is what my parents were like. This is what I think marriage is going to be. This is what my culture has told me that marriage is going to be like. And both of you have these different expectations, and you don't know to share them because you don't know that the other person has a different expectation than you do. And then you get together, and it's like, wait a second. Aren't you going to mow the yard? Why would I mow the yard? Aren't you going to mow? Wait a second. You load the dishwasher that way? Why would anybody in their right mind load the dishwasher where the coffee mugs, the handle, is in the other thing so that you can't put more cups in there? Who? Or are, you, are you a heathen? Like, why would anybody do, you know, you have all these expectations, and then when those expectations aren't met, it creates this thing in you. And, and that's what's happening. Because they have an expectation, and it, like, first, I, I do believe it's, it's based in this idea of comfort. They want Jesus, as he's saying, this has been fulfilled in their hearing, they want him to come in and say, so you're all free, and you get free, and you get free, and your sins are free, you know, all, like, he's like, just a blanket freedom over the whole thing, and let's go drive out the road, that's what they're expecting. And yet what he does is, again, he, he uses these illustrations to say, I know what you want, and yet I'm doing something different. In verse 25, he, he starts and he gives these two examples. And he says, I assure you there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. Now, who's Elijah? Who's Elijah? A prophet, right? Elijah was like, I mean, not just a prophet, but he was like a prophet. I mean, Elijah, the stories of Elijah are awesome. I mean, he did some incredible, crazy things, like superhero Marvel movie stuff. I like Marvel movies. Craig doesn't. I like Marvel movies. Like, Elijah is a real-life superhero. Crazy stuff. If, if you were, uh, if, if little Jewish kids had profit trading cards, Elijah would be one that they want. Like, they, they want that one. And Elijah was kind of like, the, uh, you know, Israel's guy, he took on the Gentiles. He, he set people free. He, God did some amazing things through Elijah. And Jesus says this, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Now this was scandalous. Because if you, if you look at a map during that time period, um, you can't really see it very well. If you have good eyes, maybe you can. But Sidon is that very top dot uh, in that Phoenicia area. Sidon is that very top dot. And then the one right under that is Zarephath. So in that region, that's where Elijah was sent. In this time of famine, chaos, who knows what's going to happen? Jesus said, you know where Elijah was sent? He was sent to people outside of Israel. See, this was, this was scandalous. Because people outside of Israel, they were called Gentiles. And Gentiles were unclean. Gentiles were outside of God's reach. Gentiles were outside of God's forgiveness. Gentiles were people, they, they couldn't even, uh, some Gentiles, the Israelite people were like, we can't even be in your presence. I mean, they had such hatred for some Gentiles that if a, if a Gentile, like if his shadow crossed their shadows, they considered themselves unclean. There was so much hatred for some Gentiles. And yet Jesus says, look, I am sending you to a people. Elijah was sent to a people that were outside. They didn't look like them. They didn't talk like them. Their culture was different than theirs. 
And, and not only that, but then the, the next example he gives is even more scandalous. It says in verse 27, there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha. Now, who's Elisha? Great prophet, yeah. He's a, I mean, great. But he was, he was the one that Elijah, when Elijah was taken up in a chariot, which is crazy. It's a crazy story. He was taken up in this chariot into heaven. Like, Elijah, Elijah's like, well, what do you want me to do for you? And he's like, give me a double portion of your spirit. That's weird. Like, who knows what that means? I mean, you know, and he's like, okay, sure. Well, if you see me go up in heaven, you'll get a double portion of my spirit. So it's like Elisha was a double great prophet than Elijah. It's like the second trading card that little kids wanted, right? And it says, Elisha, in this time of disease, he says there, there were many people in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Naaman the Syrian, who is Naaman? If you, if you think of the story in 2 Kings, Naaman was a general in the Syrian army. So not only was Naaman a Gentile, but he was an oppressor of God's people. He was an enemy of God's people. Do you remember who told Naaman about Elisha? Because Naaman had leprosy, and this person told Naaman, hey, there's a person in Israel. If you go to Israel, I bet they could heal you. Do you remember who that was? It's a slave girl. Yes, it was an Israelite slave girl. So not only, not only was he an oppressor of Israel, and it says that he was a, it was a man of valor. He was a really good general. You know what that meant? He was a big enemy of Israel. Not only was he an oppressor of Israel, he owned slaves from Israel. He was the enemy. And yet what does Jesus say? None of them were healed except for Naaman the Syrian. See, this, this elicited a huge response because their comfort level is being just completely destroyed. What Jesus is saying is that this rest that you so desperately want is bigger than just you. This rest that you desperately want, I have implications that are going to, to be for people that don't look like you. <gasps> They're going to be peep for people who don't share your culture, who don't live where you live. Who, and, and in fact, they're going to be peep for people who you would say are enemies. See, this is so scandalous because we, we deeply desire our comfort and we say, well, but this is what it's supposed to be like and this is what I'm supposed to be. And we look, at, we look at people around us and lots of times, especially in our culture, we don't see people. We see issues. We don't see people, we see problems. We don't see people, we see obstacles to get past and get over. Right? I mean, this, you, can, you can think about like in your job space, like maybe there's people that just drive you nuts in your job, right? You know those people. They tell the stupidest stories, the dumbest jokes. And now it's not, it's not people that you see, it's just that person that you just have to, uh, you know, like they say the same thing every Monday. You know, it's like, oh, that's Jim. He's so dumb, right? It's not, a, it's not a person anymore. Or what about your own family? I mean, how many times do it's like, oh, there's my brother. So I know what he's going to say. Drama, drama, drama. Everything. There's always an issue with him. Every time we get together, you know, or, or it's like, oh, we just got to get through this family meal. We just got to bear it out. Don't say anything that's going to disrupt anything. And let's just, let's just keep our comfort, right? 
We don't see people, we see issues that's like, I don't want to engage in that because if I do, I mean, let's take it a step further. What about our culture? See, we don't see people any longer in our culture. We see Democrat or Republican. We see, like, can I say this? Like, we see pro-choice or pro-life. We see liberal. We see conservative. We see, we see issues and not people. We see, we see the sign and not the person behind the sign. You see, and I think what Jesus is doing here is he's inviting us into, into a bigger picture. So, yes, are issues important? Absolutely. I'm not saying that. Were the people in Israel, were they oppressed? Absolutely. Rome was not nice. And yet Jesus oftentimes he said, said stuff that was so scandalous and, and talked about us loving our enemies and doing kind to those who, who persecute us. Like his, Jesus is less concerned with our comfort than we are. You see, the response of the people, they're like, no, that can't be. You can't tell me that this idea of rest is for people that don't look like me. You can't tell me that. I'm going to get something to throw you off of. You see, when we, when we experience that, oftentimes, it's either, it's either warfare or worship. It's either warfare or worship. You see, and these people chose warfare. Not, not, only, not only did they respond this way because he attacked their comfort, but he attracted their sense of control. You attack their sense of control. You see, if you, if you are going to be a people who have a ju- jubilee mindset that says, okay, I can forgive you and I can trust that God is going to do what God needs to do in this situation. Or, or there are times where, where it's like, okay, I'm asked to forgive. This, this thing has been done to me and I'm asked to forgive a debt. Well, what, how, who's going to take care of me then? Who's going to take care of my future if I step out in this? You see, there's a, there's a sense of control that we so desperately want to hold on to. And yet, when we are a people with a jubilee mindset, we're invited into places where we don't know what's going to happen. Where we don't know what God is going to do. Where we have to say, okay, God, you tell me to love my enemies. You tell, me, you tell me to go here, and I'm going to trust you. I, I love, like, like Peter, the story of Peter. When Peter tells Jesus, I will never leave you, even if everybody else leaves. I will never leave you. And then what's he do in the garden? What's he do in the garden? Leaves. Right before that, what's he do, though? Takes out his sword. Like, they come against Jesus, and Peter's like, oh, Yeah. It's on now. I'm glad I brought my sword. And he takes out his sword and he swings at somebody and he cuts off their ear. I, I think that's hilarious. Like, most likely, I, I heard one person saying that the temple guards, their helmets kind of came to this point. And so G, Peter's going for the, the headshot. And, and yet what he does, he swings and he, it kind of glances down, cuts the guy's ear off. And Jesus is like, Peter, what are you doing? See, I think Peter, in that moment, he's like, I told you, Jesus, I'd never leave you. I told you, Jesus, I'd die for you, and this is what it looks like. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. No, that's not what it looks like. When, when I want you to die for me, it means you give up your life. It doesn't mean you, you surrender your life by trying to fight your way out. You see, I, I, in, when I was in youth ministry, I'd ask kids all the time, would you take a bullet for your mom? Oh, yeah, I'd take a bullet for my mom. I, if somebody tried, you know, I'd, I'd die for my mom. Okay, great. Would you do your dishes for your mom? 
Well, I don't know what that has to do with anything. You see, we, we all have this, this idea of, well, this is what it looks like for me to be all in. I'll do this and I'll give this. And yet sometimes Jesus is coming in and saying, look, would you give me the control that you think you have and would you follow me in different places? Even if it looks the way that you don't think it should. Will you follow me in that? Will you trust me in that? See, I think that when we look at what Jesus is inviting us into, it, again, it has this idea of being a jubilee mindset person. We see that in, uh, even, even going back to Deuteronomy, when, when this uh, command is given to rest. I mean, in, in the, very last, the very last part of 14, it says, On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. See, from the very beginning, from, from Genesis 1, this idea of rest is not just so that we can be well-rested, but it's so that we can be a catalyst for rest in a chaotic world. So what does that look like for us? As, as we've been thinking through these, this series, we've been talking about what does it look like to get whacked with Scripture? And if you're new, it's like, that's dumb. Okay, kind of. But that's all right. It's just a way to remember what we're talking about. Because when we think about this passage... Whack. What does whack stand for? It stands for worship. How, how does this passage show me God's wonder? How does this passage lead me to worship God? The fact that, that no matter how far we are from God, that rest is still available to us? What does it look like for me to accept this passage? What, what does this passage invite me to receive? Man, maybe, maybe I'm holding on to my comfort and my control too tightly. What's the challenge? How can I grow more aware of this truth today? What does it look like for us to be whacked by Scripture? And, and, and we look at two, two words over the course of this series. And this week, the, the two words that I keep thinking about is rest and release. Rest and release. If, if we are going to enter into this rest that God gives us, what does it look like for us to release our sense of comfort and say, God, like, it's uncomfortable to have these conversations it's uncomfortable to see people as people, not just issues. It's uncomfortable to try and get in there. It's uncomfortable to do all that. And, and God, I don't know what's going to happen even if I do. That's called control. What does it look like to enter into this rest and release that sense of comfort and control that we have? I, I love because what it looks like to me, I, this, we're going to land the plane here. Uh, you guys know who this is? Carol. That's right. Uh, Pete Carroll. I'm not a sports person. All right? My wife actually told me about this story. I'm not a sports person. I don't know if I would know who that is if that came up on the screen. But Pete Carroll is the, is the coach. Is he still the coach of the Seattle Seahawks? Okay, I see some nods. Okay, so he's currently the coach of the Seattle Seahawks. Um, but he was also, the, before that, he was the coach of uh, USC, University of Southern California, um, and led that team to do some incredible things. It was an incredible coach, so I'm told and I read. Um, and and uh, one of the things that, that Pete Carroll, I was reading this article, um, and he would, every time he would, on his way to work, he would hear these stories about kids shooting kids in L.A. and, and just the the... the craziness of, of their area and how just everything was messed up and how the city was just going to hell and all these different things. And, and Pete Carroll had this thought, you know, like that's messed up. That shouldn't be. Something should be different. Something should change. 
And, and we all, I think we all have the, that kind of mindset at times. But the difference between me at times and Pete Carroll is Pete Carroll, he started to take steps and, and he started to just uh, engage with people he knew and he started to get leaders together and he started to, uh, to befriend like gang leaders and, and these young kids that were in these areas. And Pete Carroll would go into the inner cities like, uh, like places where the police officers didn't want to go because it was so dangerous, he would go in and just befriend people and start talking to people. And, and, and because he did this, he started, uh, him and a, a friend started this uh, ministry or a, a nonprofit organization called A Better L.A., and this, this nonprofit, it befriends young people and it gives them a bigger vision of what their life could be like. And, and my wife was telling me about, she went to this conference where this guy had interviewed him. I don't think they were interviewing him at this conference, but they were telling the story. Uh, and this guy that was speaking, he was kind of laughing at everything Pete Carroll had accomplished. And he asked him the question, he was like, Pete, who told you you could do this? Like, like when you're thinking about the issues and you're thinking about how crazy the world is and how messed it up and you just did things. Who told you you could do that? And Pete Carroll's response, I love it. He said, nobody told me I couldn't. Nobody told me I couldn't. So I think, I think lots of times when we look at the world around us, the temptation is to shut the door and just walk away, Right? And yet, I think what we're invited into is something more. I think what we're invited into is to be people who not only worship a God who rests, to be people who are formed by rest, and be people who invite others into that rest. And we can look around and we can say, well, this world is just crazy. I don't know what's going to help it. I don't know what's going to solve it. You know what I think is going to solve it? It's more people who have a jubilee mindset. People who are driven by God through the power of the Holy Spirit, who are seeing people not as issues, but as people who are, who, are, who are entering into the rest and releasing their sense of comfort, who are releasing their sense of control and saying, God, help me to be a catalyst for rest with what my mouth is doing, with what my words, with my, what my, my fingers are doing on that keyboard. Help me to be a catalyst for rest and what my presence is offering other people. Are we just being a, one more anxious person in an anxious society? God, help me, to be, help me to be a person who invite others to rest, no matter if they look like me or if I think they're my enemy or all these different things. See, I believe that when we ask this question, when we say, God, I want the rest that you offer, what does that look like? Help, help me to release these different things, God, because I think that's what's going to change the world around us. Amen? Let's pray. God, God, I believe the words that I just said. And in my belief, God, I confess that I don't know where to start. God, when I, when I think of my comfort, I, I love my comfort. And when I think of my sense of control, I love my sense of control. And so, God, I pray that you would um, forgive me, forgive us, for desiring comfort and control over your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. God, forgive us for wanting our comfort and control over your rest. God, God, forgive me for, for building barriers around your rest to people who I think are my enemies and don't look like me. God, I pray that you would help us to break those barriers down and help us to be people who are catalysts for rest. And just like Pete Carroll said, when, when people ask us, well, how, who told you you could do that? 
Nobody told us we couldn't. Help us to be that church. To have a bigger vision for rest than just our individual chaos-free life. But God, even this morning, we can go out from this place just having that mindset that we are jubilee people. We are Sabbath people. We are rest people. And we are inviting this world into that. We love you, God. Trust you. It's in your name. Amen. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.